Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to the takeout ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Five, four, three, two, one. But who's counting, right? His name is Major. Oh, ladies and gentlemen. Please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major, fantastic. It's the takeout. This is a major achievement. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major Garrett. Yes, CBS. Yes, hi. Major Garrett. Major, that's nonsense. And you should know better. Is Major out of the doghouse? <laughs> the answer is yes. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I will get to our guest and our location in just a minute. But first, I want you to take a second and listen to a bit of a history lesson, which I hope you'll find informative. And as the kids like to say... I will drop some breadcrumbs leading to our guest along the way. In 1914, an American citizen named Herbert Hoover organized something called the Commission for Relief in Belgium. What did it do? It prevented the starvation of 9 million Belgians and people living in northern France during World War I. It was the first large-scale U.S. effort of humanitarian assistance. That's the first breadcrumb that will lead us to our guest. And then along came World War, after World War I, rather, there was something called the Ukrainian People's Republic founded after the Romanov dynasty was sacked. It didn't last long. Lenin seized it, and Ukraine became part of the USSR in 1922. That's the second breadcrumb that will lead us to our guest. After World War II, the United States engaged in something called the Marshall Plan, massive humanitarian assistance to help bombed out, economically devastated Europe. That was in 1948. The same year, the United Nations, newly created, instituted something called the United Nations Relief and Works Agency to assist Palestinians displaced by the creation of the State of Israel. That's the third breadcrumb that will lead us to our guest. And in 1961, President Kennedy created the United States Agency for International Development. Now, that's not a breadcrumb. That would be too obvious. But it's been part of the federal bureaucracy ever since, spending billions of dollars every year on humanitarian assistance worldwide. Now, look, it's not an agency without its critics. Uh, During the Cold War, did the CIA sometimes masquerade as USAID people? Well, there are allegations to that effect. 
to carry out Cold War initiatives? Were there American corporate interests that got into USAID? There have been allegations about that. Did it suffer from white man savior syndrome? Possibly. But I ask you to think about this. Name another country in the history of mankind at the apex of its power that set aside treasure and human resources on an annual basis to assist people in need across the globe. You won't find one. You won't. The United States does this every year. And it's messy business. How messy? Well, let me go back to where I started. You know, Herbert Hoover sparing nine million people from starvation? Winston Churchill and Lord Kitchener thought that was a bad idea. They wanted food riots in Belgium to distract the Germans so they might lose World War I faster. So humanitarian assistance is not always easy and it's frequently messy. That brings us to our guest, Samantha Power, who is the administrator of the United States Agency on International Development. Samantha, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Anything you want to find fault with in that I, rather lengthy I, I introduction? I don't know where to start, uh, but no, uh, I, I think your last point is uh, very compelling. I also think the strategic case for not only doing humanitarian work, but it's really the development work, the longer term stuff of investing in job creation for young people or we distributed 700 million COVID vaccines, you know, that's an investment in our security as well as a reflection of the decency and and really, as you attest, long-term generosity of the American people. I mean, we have a lot of debate domestically. We're having a lot of debate now about a lot of what we're doing. Um, but over the years through thick and thin, somewhere the American people have recognized both that they want their values reflected internationally and a more stable and prosperous international system or less dangerous one might mm -hmm. be the way we think of it today uh, is good for us. And it has been sometimes used as a compliment, sometimes as uh, less than a compliment to call this part of soft power. Explain that concept. Well, soft power, as defined by my former Kennedy School colleague, Joe Nye, uh, is, in essence, the ability to make others want what you want. Um, so to attract rather than coerce. And, you know, whether it's Taylor Swift or LeBron James or USAID, um, you know, being in communities, being visible, um, being attractive, appealing, doing things, listening, I think, is mm -hmm. something that we have gotten better at over the years mm -hmm. and, and I think are trying to get better at still. Um, but when you're there for someone in an emergency or there to help them think through how they get girls educated when only boys have been educated, you know, that's something, or you give a scholarship and they get to come to the United States. Right. I mean, so many world leaders have been touched by American education. Um, that's the gift that keeps on giving. You know, it just changes uh, how they see uh, what the United States is, what we stand for. And we can say we stand for certain things, but it turns out when you actually stand for them, that's more convincing. And one of the reasons Kennedy had the political clout to do this in 1961 is because Dwight Eisenhower, as president, having been Supreme Allied Commander, understood the power of these gestures. Absolutely. And, um, and we see it now. I mean, I... One of my closest colleagues uh, is Lloyd Austin, uh, Chairman Brown, Chairman Milley before him. I mean, we, we talk, and not, not just in this, military it, leaders. in this administration, the Secretary of Defense and the, and the successive chairman, 
But we talk about the three Ds of American foreign policy, diplomacy, led by these days by Secretary Blinken, development, led by USA, but not only USA, the Peace Corps, mm -hmm. uh, the Development Finance Corporation, um, you know, different parts uh, of, our, of our government that lend technical assistance. You know, I spend some time talking to Mayor Pete about what lessons right. we can share on airline safety. Uh, there's a lot of knowledge, technocratic knowledge to go around. But then finally, the third D, defense. And there's no greater champion uh, of our the deployment of our resources than our, the defense community. Um, because as, you know, General Mattis, you remember famously said, you know, if you cut assistance, buy me more bullets. Right. Uh, so there, there is that recognition, but you have to uh, argue the case as the threats evolve and as conceptions of national security evolve. I mean, 10 years ago, it would have been hard to convince people that pandemic preparedness was uh, a national security interest. Now a very large part of your budget. Indeed, exactly. And and I think climate, there's obviously huge domestic divisions still on climate change, even as our own communities are being racked by the effects already of a warmed planet. Uh, but again, when you talk to the intelligence community or uh, defense colleagues, they see how destabilizing it is to have 21 million people uh, moving mm -hmm. <laughs> within a country, most of them, uh, because of climate-related drought, floods, uh, or emergencies. And and so, you know, we have to think about climate adaptation, climate resilience, just like we do in our cities, in uh, on our farms in America, thinking that through internationally and what those investments look like and how we bring in the private sector and other countries. So we're not, I mean, it's too, way too big a burden for any country to tackle alone. But that's, again, an investment in stability and in not having 21 million people restive, jobless, uh, you know, and, and mad. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, that, that is not in our interests. And so I think, again, defense, diplomacy, development together, that's the toolkit we, we need going forward. We're going to talk a great deal about Ukraine. We're at a Ukrainian-themed restaurant, Ruta, here in the eastern market part of D.C., Administrator Power, we're going to carry this into the next segment, but I want to get you started on Ukraine assistance. It's still hanging fire in Congress. What are your hopes? <laughs> well, first, just stepping back, um, I USAID is doing amazing work uh, around the world. The impact that USAID and our Ukrainian colleagues on the ground have had, even just since 2014, you know, I was in government mm -hmm. under Obama as UN ambassador uh, when Putin invaded Crimea and eastern Ukraine. And that's really when USAID investments started to pick up on independent media, investments in independent media, investments in anti-corruption institutions, investments uh, in the agricultural sector, and, and investments in the tech sector. Um, and you know, we have a situation where notwithstanding Putin's massive bombardment of civilian infrastructure, uh, Ukraine's economy is uh, is growing, uh, you know, at a rapid clip. Doing I mean, more it, than holding on. I'm going to stop you right there because we need to hit a break. Samantha Power is our special guest. Ruta is our restaurant. Back for segment two in just one second. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. 
Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome back to The Takeout. Samantha Power is our guest, administrator of the U.S. Agency for International Development. Administrator Power about Ukraine, its economic resilience. There is a sense that U.S. involvement is entirely military. That's not the case. There is a direct U.S. economic involvement. What is it manifested? Well, as I was saying before the break, just the investments that indirectly the U.S. taxpayer has made have borne such fruit that notwithstanding the bombardment, Ukraine's economy uh, grew by nearly 5% last year. Uh, I mean, that's extraordinary. Ukraine's farmers have managed to get, despite the blockade of the Black Sea and the bombardment of ports and, and um, grain silos, they are managing almost to exceed their pre-February 2022 invasion in terms of export of food. So here is, and, and I should note that that food, much of it goes to developing countries, uh, Ukraine before Putin's full-scale invasion was the largest uh, uh, grain source for the World Food Program, mm-hmm. who, of course, is USAID's key partner in many humanitarian emergency circumstances. So, you know, this is a people that is finding a way to keep on keeping on, and it's in the face of the most gratuitous uh, aggression and brutality that that we have seen in many generations on the continent since World War II. Indeed, and and, and did, so the stakes are high. Of resilience, there's also a tremendous amount of risk taking the Ukrainians. I just read a story in the Economist about how they have now created routes right along shore for their vessels, shallow waters to avoid Russian subs to get even more foodstuffs out of Ukraine. It's not easy. It's full of peril, but they're doing it. I mean, they're figuring out ways to push through this. You know, and and this is not just a talking point. This is actually relevant to your question about the supplemental and mm-hmm. additional budget support for Ukraine. President's asked for sixty billion dollars from the Congress to continue assistance to Ukraine, military and economic. So there are a few perceptions that are worth addressing um, because they there's a lot of misinformation out there as well some of it Russian backed uh, some of it organic but for every dollar the US has put in um, we have mobilized two dollars from other countries so there's a sense of like, why is America bearing this burden no the Ukrainians are bearing this burden mm-hmm. let's be clear of, of standing up uh, against aggression and for democracy and freedom it is a substantial investment that the United States has made but the reason I started by talking about economic resilience and how quickly their economy is growing and how they're feeding the world and bringing down global food prices, including for us here in Washington, D.C., never mind for people in Somalia and Kenya and Lebanon and places where they can't afford uh, higher food prices, um, is that's part of the story also about why the assistance is not indefinite. 
you know, we are tapering our assistance. Mm -hmm. The investments we are making are investments in Ukraine's own self-sufficiency. There's a reason that Europe has just agreed uh, to start accession talks with Ukraine. And it's in part because the United States and the European Union have invested over these years in building democratic institutions, but also in economic reforms that have created more interoperability between the Ukrainian economy and the European economy. So, I, you know, we hear a lot about we're bearing too much of this burden ourselves. You know, to turn a dollar into two dollars from others is a, is a decent rate of return, given mm -hmm. the budget climate uh, around the world. To think about, again, the Russian Federation and the threat it poses to so much that Americans care about, and that there is a group of individuals, men and women, who are willing to put their lives on the line to challenge that worldview and that aggression and to inflict a price. Uh, that is extremely important. Um, and it is not an indefinite, it is not a blank check. Right. These resources are, uh, there, there are checks and balances that have been built over time that are ensuring that these resources are going where they are meant and that they, the amount we are asking for is going down over time. Mm -hmm. To that point, uh, we're recording this on January 31st. In the next day or so, the European Union is likely to gather and approve $50 billion dollars and 50 billion euros, 55 billion in U.S., over four years for Ukraine, which, as some critics have pointed out, would be less than 1% of their 27-nation combined GDP. Not enough, is the argument. Ukraine needs more. Does it, from Europe? Well, I mean, that's not counting. That's the, the latest $50 billion right, package, yes, right? Yes, understood. So, the latest tranche, but spread out over four years. Yeah. I mean... I would, yes, spread out over four years, but with vital direct budget support, with vital investments in preventing Putin's attacks on energy infrastructure to end the war tomorrow. I mean, if, if this economic support gets cut off, Putin can win this war without firing a shot. So Any more shots? Anybody who thinks that security assistance alone can sustain these brave Ukrainians, it, it can't. There are two, two, two fronts in this war. One, the obvious one, and the second, the home front and the economy and so forth. So this money is vital. And, uh, you know, again, given the financial budgetary pressures that we face here in the United States, they face in Europe, it's vital that that be sustained given Orban and Hungary and how much opposition. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's, it's tough to herd 27 cats. Definitely uh, the fly in the ointment for the uh, EU. Has been. Uh, but... You know, eventually, even in Hungary, I mean, especially in Hungary, given what they've experienced of Soviet aggression back in the day, uh, you know, it is uh, it, the idea of Hungary standing with Putin and with Russian aggression is uh, anathema to many, many Hungarians. And I think fundamentally Orban knows that. And that's why when push comes to shove, he comes through again and again, uh, even if reluctantly and if extracting uh, a price for doing so. But back to your question, on top of the resources that they've spent. So the U.S. has spent $70 billion if you count the economic, the development, and the military. Europe has spent $110 billion so far. If that $50 billion goes through, our, our negotiations are still ongoing. Right. So it's very important that they are taking this lead. There were some in Europe who were arguing, let's see what the United States does. Let's wait. That would have been wrong. Mm -hmm. It's their backyard. They have uh, a responsibility. It and might improve their, the atmospherics in Congress. I hope it has that effect and not, and not its converse. Uh, but the other thing I'd add is on top of uh, the, the resources, again, that are pending, 
they have also absorbed millions of Ukrainian refugees. Yes, and it's $18 billion worth of social support translating into schooling Ukrainian children, you know, providing health benefits and other things to, to, to Ukrainian refugees. We, of course, have opened our doors as well to Ukrainians, but it's a much, much smaller number. And that is part of the context. And that is often glossed over in the conversation about what's Europe doing. I think there's also... Absorbing refugees is no small task. There's also still a sense of Europe, understandably, because of the long-time underinvestment in defense, which you, I know, have written about and talked about over the years. Uh, There's still a sense, well, okay, the U.S. must be doing the heavy lifting when it comes to security assistance. And so, since we are, why doesn't Europe carry the bag on economic Mm -hmm. development and humanitarian? Well, they are carrying, again, a bigger burden uh, than we are in those domains, even though we are investing substantially. But what's noteworthy is that actually when it comes to military assistance, the European Union and the United Kingdom, together, the ratio is not like 90-10 U.S. to Europe in terms of investments in the actual military hardware. It's much closer to 55, 45, 60, 40, depending on you know when you're counting. And of course, that ratio is going up because they're c- still providing military assistance where because mm-hmm. we haven't been able to get the supplemental through, our packages have become smaller uh, and smaller. So this supplemental package is vitally needed. It is not a blank check. It is tailored resources to not only help Ukraine uh, fend off this brutal, brutal aggression, take back more of its territory with the support we've given it's already taken back 50 percent of the territory that putin took in the early days of the war benefiting from surprise and again a disproportionate military advantage Um, but it is an investment as well long term in ukraine being an ally to the united states that will help us in other parts of the world stand up for democratic principles and against aggression And yet it feels, ladies and gentlemen, like a delicate moment, maybe the most delicate moment in the course of this conflict, Russia and Ukraine. And by that I mean there are all sorts of stories, first in the Financial Times earlier this week, then the front page of the Washington Post digital section this morning, about, well, President Zelensky is going to sack his top general. And there's disarray at the top of Ukrainian leadership and what was accomplished or failed in the spring counteroffensive. We'll talk with Samantha Power about that on the other side of this break. I'm Major Garrett. Root is our host restaurant. Back in a minute. Welcome back to The Takeout. Delighted to have Samantha Power, Administrator of the U.S. Agency for International Development, at our table. Ruta is our restaurant. So, you saw the stories. You've heard all the conversation about Zelensky and the top general in Ukraine and what that might do for morale. Can Ukraine win? What does a win look like? You can't set policy. I can't set policy. Your expertise right now is in the area of development and assistance. I have zero expertise. I just ask questions. Shed whatever light you can on that part of the story. Well, you're right. It's getting a lot of attention, and it comes in the context of both Europe and the United States trying to mobilize more resources and, um, you know, more, more confidence in the Ukrainian war effort, of course, People like to back winners, and so yes. and so. There's a lot, even more attention to this than than might have come at, at different inflection points. But having said that, I mean, much of this coverage is not taking note of the amount of turnover in the Russian military over the course of this war. I mean, there was a period where Putin week was to week, generals left, left and, right. and right, and and 
you know, it's true that the front lines stabilized and didn't move as much as, of course, uh, the Ukrainians or we would have wished to see. Uh, but at the same time, Russia is investing, you know, infinite capital in its industrial base, in its military, throwing um, prisoners and uh, drafting citizens and, and mobilizing people um, to the front lines, huge casualties, uh, tragically for those for those individuals mm-hmm. who would Both would prefer would prefer uh, not to have been mobilized. Um, but but I, I I think that you know the, that there there has been uh, you know uh, uh, more of a, a static posture on the front lines than anybody wanted. But but that is precisely the reason to give Ukraine the tools to succeed. I mean the the answer. Uh, is is not to pull back, but instead uh, to look at what the next. The answer phase to a stalemate the, is not defeatism. He's <laughs> not. Yeah, and it's not exactly. And and there are. Um, Putin is all in. The only uh, actors on the global stage who will be jumping up and down with delight if we fail to move our security and our economic and and humanitarian package forward are individuals in Moscow. Tehran and probably Beijing, and maybe and, Pyongyang, and and Pyongyang as well. Certainly, because it has been a lifeline for Pyongyang's uh, uh, faltering economy, uh, being able to to uh, do missile and, and other and export other weapons uh, to the Russian Federation. So, um, you know, it it has been a very long war uh, for the Ukrainian people. It has taken a tremendous toll. What keeps and I've seen this firsthand. I was in Odessa this summer. Been in Kiev. Uh, multiple times since the full-scale invasion began and before. And international support is more than uh, a logistic lifeline. Mm -hmm. It is a morale lifeline. Knowing that the forces of freedom uh, stand together on behalf of their sacrifice or in support of them as they sacrifice uh, makes a world of difference. And that that is not something the Russian Federation has on its side. People on the Russian side of the lines are not dying for a cause. <laughs> you know, yes, there's massive misinformation about Ukrainian aggression, about NATO encirclement, but nobody's buying that. They're dying for a paycheck. They're dying so as to get out of prison. Mm-hmm. They're putting their lives on the line because they have no choice, because they're being coerced. At the end of the day, if it's a battle of wills, uh, Ukraine can prevail and, and, and can get back on the offensive. But that is not going to happen if they are looking over their shoulder wondering if their biggest backers and the biggest forces of freedom are ambivalent about their fortune. Let's turn to the Middle East. I mentioned UN Relief and Works Agency is one of my breadcrumbs. You know that that agency all this week has been under tremendous scrutiny. The Israeli government has provided what the Secretary of State has called credible information about some members, a very small number of the UN Relief and Works Agency, having had some role in the October 7th attacks. The United States has frozen contributions. Your thoughts? Well, first of all, anybody who was involved in the October 7th attack and the brutality and the planning of it and the execution of it in kidnappings, um, you know, not only deserves, you know, condemnation, but also punishment. Um, And so what the UN has commenced, which is an internal investigation into these allegations, which do seem credible, but we will see how this investigation plays out. 
Um, I mean, that's incredibly important. And then the question of what to do with these individuals on the back end mm-hmm. of that. But more than that, the systemic uh, changes that would need to be made within UNRWA, uh, because it's just not okay. <laughs> it's just nothing okay uh, about this. And, and I think that this, the seriousness with which the Secretary General is, is engaging it. Um, but, you know, we as USAID... We're one of the lead humanitarian uh, providers. You know, you have 90% of the Gazan population that has been displaced. Uh, there is acute dependence for survival, you know, not, not, not for like a healthy calorie intake, but for mere survival on the humanitarian infrastructure. And what people maybe aren't fully aware of is that, particularly since October 7th and the full-scale war, but, but even beforehand, USAID's traditional partners like the World Food Program, mm-hmm. UNICEF, you know, par- uh, International Committee for the Red Cross, uh, Catholic Relief Services, you know, a lot of the agencies that USAID and the State Department fund for distribution, they rely on the UNRWA yes. infrastructure. So it's not only the displaced who are gathered at UNRWA sites. For it's my audience's benefit, yeah. most of the warehouses and almost all of the trucks pre-October 7th and post-October 7th are managed, supervised, and staffed by UNRWA. Correct. So They are the lifeline within Gaza. They, they are the lifeline, and unusually, you know, when something happens and you have diversion or you have uh, a, a, an implementing partner of the United States get implicated, I mean, again, something like this is, is, is uh, especially horrific, but, uh, you know, you can look around and you have a, a multitude of other partners that you can shift resources to. That is really the ability to scale. They have 13,000 workers who are working on the ground in Gaza. They are a kind of administration of sorts, like almost like a civil administration. So, you know, if I look at World Food Program, which is a very large implementing partner, you're talking about dozens of officials that they have uh, doing the work. Maybe, maybe, you know, you ramp that up and and you get it up to hundreds of officials, but but replicating that distribution network mm-hmm. at a time where the UN is assessing that 25% of the population is suffering from acute food insecurity, critical food shortages. So you ask my thoughts, we are grappling with this yeah. tension right now. And what's important is that this investigation proceed, uh, that it be thorough, that it not just be about these individuals, but be looking at the systemic failures that it may, may have made something like this possible. Uh, but at the same time, we are doing contingency planning because we have to continue, not, not only continue to get supplies in, we should be dramatically increasing not only humanitarian traffic, but commercial traffic into Gaza. Or even if everything stayed static and this unrest sca- uh, scandal you know, had not occurred, we were not meeting needs right. sufficiently. So if you throw the, that pre-existing condition, uh, if you assess that, that on its own, the trajectory we were on was one that was going to produce large-scale uh, pain, even more than has existed so far, and, and likely death. Uh, now, if somehow 13,000 uh, aid workers are, are taken off the field and the work that they were doing is suddenly not being done... That that situation is going to get a lot worse. So, but which, but, which but leads again, to a vital question. Yeah, how long will the United States freeze this? Well, it's going to be action dependent, and and we're in engagement with the UN 
about their investigation uh, and, and, and what it turns out and about whatever remediation can be taken. We're also in touch with the Israelis. I met yesterday with Kogat, who I'm sure you know, who oversees uh, you know, many of these uh, the, the, the relationships inside Gaza and what goes into Gaza. And, and you know, I, I, think, I think we all need to get on the same page of averting humanitarian catastrophe. Certainly that was Kogat's uh, the again Israeli general uh, in in charge of uh, you know the, hum, the the occupied territories and 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 what goes in and what goes out, uh, but what what the UN does the speed of this investigation is going to be really important in figuring out next steps and all donors that have suspended assistance and I think we're now more than a dozen countries have done so because the allegations are so horrific are asking the same question I mean nobody is turning their back on the people of Gaza quite the contrary. We're looking at, again, what will it take to be in a position to be surging assistance and going far beyond where we've gone to this point. In other words, time is of the essence. That is the voice of Samantha Power, our special guest. Stay tuned for segment four of The Takeout in just one second. Welcome back to The Takeout. Ruta is our host restaurant. We thank them for their hospitality. Samantha Power, administrator of the U.S. Agency for International Development, our special guest. If you don't know this, ladies and gentlemen, Samantha Power won a Pulitzer Prize for a 2002 book on genocide. That word has been thrown around about the war between Israel and Hamas. Matter of fact, the South African government has alleged that Israel has committed genocide. The International Court of Justice in The Hague has not rendered an opinion about that, but is considering the question. I know you can't answer that definitively, but do you have thoughts about how that word is being used, even by some protesters here in our country? in the person of the President of the United States, about Israel's conduct in Gaza? Well, I think, you know, I have the privilege of working at USAID, um, and unlike when I was a journalist or... or a war out, correspondent, out, yes, out, in out, war correspondent back in the day, um, I get to do something about humanitarian uh, crises and really focus on the tangible needs... And engage with decision-makers. And engage with decision makers, of course. And I think that we're in, we are of the view, and President Biden, you know, at the beginning of this conflict decided, thought a lot about how best to exercise leverage and decided to use our leverage pressing the Israeli government to allow more humanitarian assistance in to uh, consistently seek to improve protection of civilians. I recognize that... Uh, the number of people who have been killed, uh, you know, is 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 uh, a very very high number, and More the conditions are, are are horrific uh, for Palestinians in Gaza. Uh, but our focus again is on pressing for greater compliance with international humanitarian law, even recognizing what Hamas is doing, which is abusing humanitarian law and sheltering uh, in areas that should be sacred, like hospitals, mosques, uh, and the like. And so, you know, my focus in my role is pressing, 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 as I had the opportunity to do this week with my Israeli counterparts, uh, for better precautions, better safeguards, better protection for civilians. At the same time, I think one of the, you know, there's a lot of frustration um, uh, in a lot of quarters about, uh, you know, well, why not? Why, why focus just on the humanitarian pause and not on a ceasefire, which, which I completely understand. <laughs> Believe me, seeing every day the suffering of Palestinians 
where that question comes from. I think the challenge that all of us are grappling with is the same people who carried out October 7th are still at large, yes. most of them. And they still have the same intent, uh, which is to attack Israel, uh, to kill Jews. Um, and, and so, you know, the, 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 the challenge with end it tomorrow, even if there uh, are clear humanitarian imperatives and Palestinian civilians are paying a price for what those killers did on October 7th, uh, the challenge again is one could have no confidence that the same thing wouldn't happen again and that they wouldn't reconstitute. So, um, you know, we press, I mean, there aren't enough supplies getting in uh, to Gaza uh, to deal with basic food, medicine, and shelter, but also Again, humanitarians are not able yet to be able to move freely and know that they themselves are not going to be struck in the course of a war. And that is where uh, the protection of civilians simply, uh, again, has to improve. Um, And that is where we continue to press. You know, and UNRWA has its critics. I'm not a critic or an advocate. But one of the facts is, as you mentioned, Administrator Power, they have 13,000 employees in Gaza. 150 have been killed. Again, something that we raise uh, with the Israelis uh, constantly. I mean, some killed in their workplace in the- where, where displaced persons are sheltered around them. So you, we hear about the aid workers, but often if an aid worker is dying at the workplace, chances are there are displaced persons gathered sheltering, thinking that the UN flag will, will protect them. Um, uh, many killed in their home. I mean, one of, one of the most tragic... Uh, sort of testaments to just how dangerous life is for a Palestinian civilian in Gaza is that parents, I mean, imagine this for ourselves, every night uh, are thinking about how do I separate my children so they're not all in In one place. place. Uh, And family after family, uh, including families of our implementing partners, you know, talk to us about those decisions that they make every day before sunset, uh, worried about what is going to happen in the night. So, Again, we are pressing. We are using our leverage behind the scenes. Um, the results been, are not what they need to be, but we, we are not going to, uh, to stop pushing. It has been said if there is a truck heading into Gaza and the Israelis find some fault with it, meaning from a security perspective, they will stop the whole convoy. Is that true? And is there a dialogue going on about increasing the flow and not using security as a means by which to staunch available aid into Gaza? Is there a dialogue? Um, you know, I think the President of the United States knows... I can only tell you how lengthy the dialogue yeah, yeah. is. Major. I mean, I don't know that there's ever been an American president who has been so immersed in truck contents and, you know, what is on the forbidden list and what is on the allowed list and what is dual use and should it be dual use. And, and yes, I think we think there are goods that should be able to flow Many goods that were prohibited at the beginning of the mm-hmm. conflict because of President Biden or Jake Sullivan or the secretary or my or others pressure now is flowing into Gaza. Fuel is the best mm-hmm. example of that, of course, where the population would not be surviving at all. But for uh, the decision finally to allow fuel in. Um, but we, de- we, we think, of course, uh, that more goods should be flowing that are being vetted through the Israeli sort of vetting system. We also think, you know, Israel now has the technology to track where things are going and that, you know, that that tracking has produced uh, evidence of things not going where they should go and then we're able to make corrections and so forth. It is not going to be a perfect system. 
Um, so again, that is an area we continue to press. But I, I would I would underscore the point I made earlier, which is it's not just about these humanitarian goods. We are not going to be able to humanitarian aid our way out of a colossal humanitarian crisis. Commercial traffic has to flow, and it has begun to flow because, I think, largely of U.S. pressure. Uh, but it is not flowing at scale, and, and there's just not enough money in the world to, to use just humanitarian aid, nor is there dignity in that, of course, for the, for the people of Gaza. So it is not enough to focus just on the humanitarian, but we need to return to 300, 400, 500 commercial trucks flowing in. And of course there, if I could just say one thing about the Israeli uh, system, you know, where they're coming at this from is somehow all of those supplies got into Gaza prior to October 7th, (laughs) such that they were able to stage an operation of that sophistication with that level of, of deadly weaponry. And so, you know, again, from their standpoint, they never want to live again with the knowledge that something has slipped through that has given rise to a capability that results in more than a thousand Israeli deaths. You know, that risk aversion, risk avoidance imperative, of course, needs to be balanced against the need to, to <laughs> for people to be able to live uh, securely with dignity, be able to feed their families. Um, and that, like the UNRWA question, that is something we are grappling with now, but we are pressing and, again, had the occasion to do so uh, just yesterday with the person who's making those, those choices about what goes in and what goes out. Um, and it is important, again, that more, fl- m- more in quantity and more in variety uh, of staple uh, gets in to the people of Gaza. As I said in my lengthy and possibly self-indulgent intro, humanitarian aid can sometimes be very messy business. Samantha Power, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. We'll see you next week, folks. Stay tuned for your takeout, outtake, especially Don't forget that. Stay tuned for that. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome to your takeout outtake especial. We've had a pretty heavy conversation with Samantha Power. These are heavy times. Administrator of the U.S. Agency for International Development. So this will be a little lighter. This will be a little easier. This will be a little less aggressive in terms of the topicality. So we have three questions we ask every guest who appear on the show. Take these in whatever order you prefer. I give them this way. Uh, most influential book in your life and why? All-time favorite movie? And if you're on a long flight or a long drive and you're really going to enjoy some music, what kind of music, artist, or genre is that most likely to be? Okay. Um, I will start with 
most influential book. It's interesting because influential and favorite, maybe, right. maybe yeah. two different things. But I like to think of it as a book that like changed your point of view or changed the yeah. way you thought about yourself or the world around you. Well, I would say um, the most influential would be George Orwell's Politics in the English Language mm-hmm. um, in terms of changing the way I wrote, communicated, but also as my poor staff can attest, <laughs> my, de- my exactingness uh, in terms of how to clearly express USAID is mm. an agency that is doing unbelievable work around the world, but sometimes the way we describe it is very technical and right. very jargony. And Little leaden. We, we, need to, we need to actually describe it as we would describe it here sitting at a, at a dinner table. Uh, and there's just no better little treatise on how to write and how to express oneself. In terms of life-changing, I'd say Primo Levi, basically everything Primo Levi ever wrote, um, the Holocaust, and reading and learning about it was foundational in my education. I'm an immigrant to this country, mm-hmm. understanding also how America was changed by the Holocaust, by the liberation of the camps, but also uh, by the memory of, of what Hitler did and... and um, Primo Levi, just the the humanity uh, that he captures in his own life in the camps, but also the spectrum, the gray zones mm-hmm. that so many find yep. themselves on, yep. not not merely perpetrator or victim, right. but everything in between, yes. really changed uh, so much of the way I think about the world. Um, movie. movie. Well, movie, I, I'm, my husband is very... Uh, He's not known for this, but he's very romantic. My husband is Cass Sunstein, author of 50 books, not known for his romantic uh, flair, maybe uh, in the written word. But um, we both love this movie, About Time, Mm -hmm. uh, which is a time travel movie. I hate time travel. Cass loves time travel. But it's a time travel backwards, and it's Mm -hmm. not like Groundhog Day or something like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, But where you get in the movie sort of the moral of the story is to savor the simple moments, Mm -hmm. you know, the small gestures at a restaurant or the small making eye contact on a street or, and it's in many ways about dignity um, and, you know, how to treat people and and the way one would wish to be treated. So it's not a well-known movie, but I would urge people to to explore it. It's great about time. And then uh, music, so much to say about music, but I would just say, especially because Shane McGowan just died, I would say anything by the Pogues at any time um, can rev me up and get me ready to get back to the office uh, to face uh, some of what awaits. Excellent. Answers we've never had in nearly eight years, so well done. Samantha Power, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. We'll see you next week, folks. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Jake Rosen, and Ashley Armstrong. CBSN production by Eric Susanen. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS News. If you like the takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. 
It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most-watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.